your Bibles, go with me to 1 Timothy. <laughs> oh, Miss Emma. First uh, Timothy chapter 3. So we may never get through First Timothy, because uh, as you know, when we kind of start diving into a book, uh, get into it, and I'm like, man, I just can't preach this whole thing at once. We've got we to gotta break it down a little bit further, and I'm fighting my comfort and desire to do that myself, but this week it gave in, or I gave in was we were supposed to do 14 through, through 4, verse 5. Um, but we're just going to do 14, 15, and 16. So, uh, sorry, that, didn't, that may not have made sense. We're supposed to do 14 to the end of chapter 3, and then the first five verses of 4. We're going to say the first five verses of 4 to next week. Uh, and we're going to just do 14, 15, and 16 this morning. Uh, so... As we jump into this, I just want to thank you for worshiping alongside of me, uh, our God, this morning. Um, just much, much encouragement there. So, all right, let's read 14, 15, and 16. God says, through Paul to Timothy and to us today, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how, you ought, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, as we study Your Word this morning, as, as, we, uh, as I seek to, to teach Your Word this morning, Father, I pray that the things that plague my mind this morning, that, Father, that they would be, they would be hushed just for these next few moments. Father, that's... Uh, that, Father, Your Word would speak to us clearly. Um, that, Father, I would, uh, anything that Matt would have to say this morning that's not part of Your Word, that it would be burned from our ears. And, Father, that Your Word would just speak uh, to us this morning. And, Father, I just ask for Your grace. And, Father, it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Alright, so as we jump into this, there's, I think there's much to say to us today just through these three verses. And I want to start with a question. And that is this, what is the purpose of godliness? What is the purpose of godliness? What is the purpose of godliness? Why do we strive for godliness? For what end does God use godliness? Why would we seek godliness? Now, as we think about seeking godliness and, and, and its purpose, I, I want to just kind of acknowledge a couple potential dangers right from the very beginning. Now, in, in our theology and doctrine that we hold as a church, we hold to the, the doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Now, the perseverance of the saints, and we've talked about this in the past multiple times, that like traditionally, particularly Baptists, kind of hold this, um, uh, well, Southern Baptists should say, Hold this kind of view of uh, eternal security where I'm kind of saved and then whatever happens afterwards doesn't kind of doesn't really matter. Like I'm saved, I'm always saved, and and now they wouldn't say that, but that's kind of functionally the way it kind of plays itself out. Um, now it wouldn't be the dog. They wouldn't. I mean, no, even good Southern Baptists would say, ah, that's yeah, that's what we believe. No, they would say, no, you no, know, it does matter what happens. But I think perseverance of the saints helps us kind of differentiate from that because there is a part like persevering in the faith is key so works are a necessity uh, we'll be careful how i say this are a necessity to our salvation but as an outworking of our salvation not a cause of our salvation 
Right? So because we are redeemed, we will do good works. We will persevere in the faith. So it's necessary in the sense that it is a fruit that comes from that, but not necessary in the sense of it's needed for you to be redeemed. Does that make sense? So we're not earning our salvation. Works come as a result of God's redemption. Much more I could say to that. But one of the dangers in seeking godliness, because it's a part of our perseverance, one of the dangers is turning our works into an earning of our salvation. So it, that is still a danger that we have to be careful with, but it doesn't mean we should stand way back from that line of going, well, no, no, we can't talk about perseverance. No, we can go to the line that God draws and then ask Him to help us be faithful to not step over it and turn our salvation into a works-based salvation. So that would be one danger. But here's the thing. I don't think that that purpose of persevering, of seeking godliness as a part of our perseverance is the only danger. I think the other danger is this, is that we would have such a small vision when it comes to the purpose of persevering in godliness. I think if we were to ask this question again, go back to the question I asked, what is the purpose of godliness? Why do you seek godliness? What motivates you to seek godliness? I think for many of us, our reasons might be pretty limited. Even my own limits, even after studying this past week, I'm sure are quite limited. But God, think, and His Word here this morning will help us have a bigger picture for why we would seek godliness. Why we would seek to be holy. I think God's purpose for us continuing in godliness goes way beyond simply the goal of reaching glorification. Right, so godliness is a part of our perseverance. That's a huge part of it, absolutely. But, I think there's more to even just that. And I think this is where Timothy, where Paul takes us at the end of chapter 3. And so my goal, my goal this morning is to help us see from the text. And my goal is that you would have an awe-inspiring and motivating God-centered vision concerning the purpose for your perseverance in godliness. I'm going to say that again. My goal is that you would have an awe-inspiring and motivating God-centered vision concerning the purpose for your perseverance in godliness. I'll say it one more time. That you would have an awe-inspiring and motivating God-centered vision concerning the purpose for your perseverance in godliness. Why do you pursue godliness is the question this morning. Why do you read your Bible? Why should the church as a whole, as a corporate body, why should we pursue godliness? Why? Why? Like, like this, we've been on this journey as a church, I think, of the past couple years, really of digging into sin beyond a surface level. We've been digging into it at a heart level, right? I mean, and, and many of us have felt the pain of that. Maybe even this past week. Maybe even a month ago, we... Feel the pain. Why would we do that? Why would we, why would we seek to eradicate sin? To be godly. Why would, you, why would you ever exhort a brother or sister in sin? Why would you do that? Why would you ever seek exhortation from a brother or sister? I mean, in this world, that's a crazy idea. Why would you do that? Why would you want someone to critique you? The world does that enough. I should be able to live the life the way I want to. I mean, that's what a culture is feeding us, but... Why would, you, why would we do this? Why would we seek godliness? Just for that, let me read to us one more time these words, and we'll start working through them in 1 Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I mean, it should be one of the best pieces of poetry that we have. And it's kind of tucked right here in the middle of 1 Timothy. So Paul, and it reminds us of the context here, Paul has been writing to Timothy, who's the leader of the church in Ephesus, who is in a little bit of trouble. There's, there's some trouble going on in the body of Christ and the church of Ephesus. There are legalists who are pushing godliness for the purpose 
of self-promotion, right? I can promote myself to acceptance before God by what I do and the way I live. Another struggle, of course, this would be a similar struggle to even us today, is the Roman culture of self-adornment and, and self-promotion again is pushing in on the body. I think that's part of why Paul is talking about this ladies doing it God's way there at the end of chapter 2. And then we also have seen so far leading up to this point the, the sinful tendencies of men and women to assume the role of the opposite. And this is chewing away at the structure and the health of the church at this day. Men wanting to fulfill the roles of women and women wanting to fulfill the roles of men. And Paul says this cannot be. So in the midst of that context, okay, it's in the midst of that context that Paul says to us in these words, I think the first thing that we need to see is that he says pursuit of godliness is necessary among the family of God. It is necessary among the family of God. <coughs> now you're like, I, you're like, I know, right? Duh. That's necessary, right? We got that, right? All right. Well, let's, let's ask a couple like diagnostic questions here. So we in our heart, I mean, all of us go, okay, yeah, yeah, we need to pursue godliness. I got that. But I want us to now think, am I pursuing godliness? Because if I know that to be true, then it should be living itself out in my life. So let's just, I want to ask a few questions to kind of help us either know, are we seeking godliness? Or to what extent am I really seeking godliness? Here's a couple questions. Do we seek to know what godliness looks like? Over this past week, have you sought to know what godliness looks like? Have you studied His Word looking for what godliness looks like? Now, if you're seeking to know the character of God in the Word, then that would be like what godliness looks like, right? You may not have connected those dots, but, but that would be good. You know, you're looking back over the Word and... God looks this way, and so I need to live this way, and this is how I can reflect the image of God. But do we seek to know? Like, Are you actively pursuing knowing or the knowledge of what God looks like or what godliness looks like? Now, to do that, you've got to study the Bible. You've got to. All right, next question. When was the last time you genuinely confessed sin and repented to God? And repented to those maybe around you that you sinned in the process. When was the last time you genuinely confessed sin, heartbroken, repented to God for that sin? I mean, it's, it's indicting even of my own heart as I ask that question. Next question, do you seek, welcome, receive, and apply exhortation concerning your godliness from brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you seek, welcome, receive, and apply exhortation from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Last question, how big is the wall of pride around you that has been built so as to scare others off from speaking the truth of the word to you. We would all do well to, to see how big the, the wall is that we've built around us. Like if I could just be honest with you, you know, as as a leader, as wanting to shepherd people and shepherd the flock, and sometimes that means saying things that aren't comfortable. Like sometimes, like just to be honest, like wisdom says, I have to kind of step back and go, are they, like what will happen if I say that truth? Will they take off running? Or will they, re- like will they receive it and grow from it and know that it's in love and, and, and know that it's for their good and for their grace and and so there's a balance. It's not just, well, if it's true, I just need to say it. Well, yeah, I mean, eventually that truth needs to. But there's wisdom in going, 
should I say this now, or, sh- or do, does the relationship need to develop a little bit more, or does some walls of pride need to kind of come crumbling down? I mean, and, and I think that's the, the character of God. God does that with us, right? He doesn't reveal it all to us at once. He doesn't show us. He, I mean, even though, even though we as a church believe in the, the depravity of man, that, God, that man can do no good apart from God, like, even that, God, even in knowing and believing that doctrine, we still haven't like been revealed. It hasn't been revealed to us the true depth of our sinfulness. We would be destroyed, okay, to, to if God was to reveal. So, so even He, like, is gentle and takes His time with us. But, but understand, some of that's to our detriment. Some of that is, like, when it, particularly when it comes to other people, that we've built these walls around that go that really say. I'm not pursuing godliness because I don't want you to speak godliness to me. So functionally, like mentally you might say, yeah, I'm pursuing godliness, but functionally built these walls around us that say, no, 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 no. That will be, that'll be too much. And so we all need to think, are, are we opening up, are we exposing ourselves to one of the greatest benefits of the body of Christ? And that is for the body to exhort our hearts so that they would not grow cold towards the living God. Hebrews says to exhort each other every day. Now, if you don't want to take that as literally every day, it's at least more than once every four months. uh, Or once a week. Like, this is frequent. I like to think of it as Literal, but uh, anyways. 1 Timothy 3.15, he says this. So that's what I want you to think. Are we thinking godliness? Is God, am I really genuinely pursuing godliness? Or how much, to what extent am I pursuing godliness? 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, if I delay, he's saying, I'm writing these things, that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. So first thing, what do we see? The household of God. Talking about pursuing godliness. I think the first thing Paul recognizes for us uh, and helps us to see is that the household of God has a code. That there is a code in the household of God. There is a standard of behavior in the household of God. There is a set of, I don't want to say rules, but there's a description of behavior that, that, behave, that, that is true of the household of God. Now, I, think, I don't think this is a foreign concept for us as a church. Much of what we believe of the code of what behavior looks like in the household of God, we've tried to capture that in our church covenant. We've tried to represent that. That's why at the end of our church covenant we say that if you were to move on from this body, that you would, you would try, even if that church does not have a covenant, that you would try to live out the spirit of this covenant because the covenant is not renovation specific but it's god specific it's christian specific we believe our covenant to be so i just want to read a couple things to you just as a kind of reminder uh, of our church covenant says uh, one line in there says we covenant together to glorify god by making disciples of all nations this is a glorious phrase that's a code that's how we should be living that we're together to glorify god in everything that we do Another paragraph in there says, Together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another in accordance with the New Testament understanding of church discipline and restoration. We will give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel through all nations. Now this is just a portion, but I just want you to see that as a body, we recognize here that there is a code for God's household, His people, His family. There is expectations given from God's word for the household of God. I mean, we live in a culture that just kind of wants to say, well, Whatever floats your boat, let that keep floating it, you know? And whatever floats my boat, don't disturb it, all right? But God doesn't operate that way. He says, whatever floats my boat will best float your boat, all right? Don't push that too far. It's maybe a bad analogy, but Christians must know how to conduct themselves in God's house. Now, second thing, 
what do we see about the household? We need to understand what, what Paul is saying about the household. I think the second thing we need to see is that the household is more about a relationship than about a location. The household is more about a relationship than about a location. Now let's jump back in a little bit earlier into chapter 3 to help us understand what he means about household. Look at chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 4. He says, he must manage, talking about a, a deacon, he says, he, or, I'm sorry, an elder, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So what does he mean by household? I would propose to you that even in the Old Testament, it wasn't so much about the buildings as it was so much about who inhabited those buildings. So even the temple, the, the tabernacle, it wasn't so much about the building as it was about preparing it for the one who would inhabit that building and the relationship that would take place in the context of that building. It was about the relationship. Now, the building was important. We want to discard that, but it was important so far as it was connected to the relationship between God's people and their leader and caretaker and shepherd, God. Now notice his concerns in the qualifications. They all deal with relational aspects, right? And we're talking about overseers. and It all deals with the relational aspect, very relational in what's going on. Paul's concern here is for the people as the family of God. That's what's coming in, what's leading us right into the end of this. He's talking about the household. He's concerned about the relationship with the body and the relationship of that body ultimately with God. So his concern is how Christians should conduct themselves in relationships, particularly among the redeemed. That's what's going on here in the text. Now we understand, right, that there's different behavior that is acceptable in different contexts. We all got that, right? What about the boardroom? Right? If anybody's been in a boardroom or a meeting or can imagine from TV, you know, what a boardroom, like what would be the behavior acceptable in a boardroom? You know, we all like those movie scenes where the, where the dude kind of comes in and kind of breaks the mold and yells at people, you know, in the boardroom. But, but there's a behavior that's acceptable. That's why that scene looks so extraordinary is because there's a behavior that's acceptable in a meeting room such as a boardroom. What about the context of being at the pub? I mean, none of us go there, but, you know, what would be the context of at the pub, right? How would be the behavior acceptable at the pub? Paul is concerned about the people in the household of God. But I would encourage you to, th to think of this not as a location, but it's the people. Now, if it's not the location, but it's the people, then this means this godliness that's expected of us is not based upon location. Now, we've talked about this in the past. You've heard me say the phrase in the past this. If church is something you go to, then it is something you can leave. But if the church is something you are, then it's something you must be everywhere you go. The church is not something, that's why like, even with my own kids, I'm trying to help them to see, we're not going to church on Sunday morning, we're going to gather with the church. And Tuesday nights we gather with the church. Today we're being the church, we're just being the church scattered instead of gathered. It's just, I mean, this is helpful, we've so conditioned our minds that, that godliness uh, or the, one of the unfortunate outcomes of the way we've conditioned our minds to think of church as a place we go is that then godliness can somehow be tied to or limited to the going to church. So ultimately, I think Paul is saying that this godliness of the household of God is who you are as a people, and it must be displayed in the way you live everywhere Everywhere you go, and particularly in relationship with the people of God. This is what it looks like as the people of God, no matter where you go, that this is how you are to look. Now what you need to do in your own time is take this and go back. And we're going to do a little bit of this in the next few moments. But go back and go, alright, well what does this godliness look like? If this is supposed to consume me everywhere I go, what does this look like? 
<coughs> so let's talk about that for just a few moments. Godliness as it's defined in the immediate context here. From the qualifications of elders, just taking a quick sampling of that. From the qualifications for eldership and deacons, he says we should be above reproach. Husband of one wife. Now, wives, do you understand? I think what he is getting there is a, not a marital status, but a morality status. I, my mind and heart is, is focused on my spouse, and that is it. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a lover of money, manages his own household. Right? So there's just a sampling. There's much more in 3, 1 through verse 13 that would tell us what does what godliness look like? And that's just right in chapter 3. You have, you know, my Bible has like another 1,200 pages. Now also, we, we get it defined from, from this book in 1 Timothy, from the immediate context. What does godliness look like? Well, it, it looks like the opposite of what the legalists are doing. So the legalists are trying to promote themselves before God by living their laws. But then what's happening from that is that because they think they've earned it, then what's coming out of that is quarreling, envy, fighting. You see that at the end of Timothy, you see that at the beginning of 1 Timothy. And the third place I think we see it is right in chapter 2 and chapter 3 leading right up to this point. And I think that is Paul fighting for the roles of men and women as a reflection of godliness. Uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. It's probably worthy of a separate sermon. But Paul is connecting here for Timothy that the purpose for which we're going to talk about today, the purpose, one of the purposes for which godliness serves is greatly impacted by the roles of men and women. Gender roles, right? So I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. So godliness as it's defined in the immediate context, from qualifications of elders, in opposition to the legalists, and this fighting for roles of men and women. The next thing we see underneath this... Uh, pursuit of godliness that must be present is that godliness comes as we are captivated by the greater reality of God's presence. Godliness comes as we are captivated by the greater reality of God's presence. Alright, so what's going on? How, how do you see that, Matt? What's that at in the context? What are you talking about? Many of them, at this point, this is why Paul is writing this letter, have been captivated by the presence of the false teachers. So false teachers are saying, this is the way life should be. This is the rules we need to live by. You need to abstain from marriage and so on and so forth. And, and they've been captivated by the fact that those false teachers are present and they are teaching them these things. And I think many of us are captivated by the presence of other things other than God, like maybe the fear of man, maybe misguided affections. Maybe we're more captivated by our husband or our wife. Look at verse 15, the last part of B is where we'll, or the last part of 15 is where we'll concentrate, or, la, or the middle phrase, I should say. It says, if I delay, you may know how, you ought, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of what? The living God. It's the church of the living God. What is Paul doing? What is Paul saying? I mean, this is, Paul is saying, be aware of God's presence. Like, as you are seeking to live out this godliness, be aware that, yes, the false teachers are there. Yes, that is a reality, but there is a greater reality. And the greater reality is that the living God is there. Now think about, I mean, what Paul, I mean, I mean, think of all the Old Testament that Paul would have in his mind at this point. And like, what, like I mean, the, the church in Ephesus may not get this, you know, being made up of lots of Greeks. Like, but, but Paul, what he's got in his mind at this point of the presence of God was with his people in the wilderness and and all of the holiness and all of the structure that had to take place so as to reflect the orderliness and the holiness and the character of God. And, and he says to his people, you are, need to seek godliness. There is a behavior that is acceptable for the people of God because the living God is present among you. Forget about the false teachers. They pale in comparison to the fact that the living God lives among his people. 
Why would you listen to them when God has spoke? And the same question would be to us. Why do we listen to fear of man, misguided affections, when the presence of God is among us and He has spoken? Guys, someone who loves the presence of God, someone who desires the presence of God, will seek to know God's desires and reflect the same desires in his life. All right. So what is my goal? What am I hoping that you see from these words that you would have an awe-inspiring and motivating God-centered vision concerning the purpose of your perseverance and godliness? So godliness, we see, is necessary for a couple reasons already. It's commanded. I mean, God commands it, certainly. We also see that because God is the living God, that He is present among you, that His presence should be that which captivates the people of God. I will say this, His presence among us is that which captivates the people of God. So as we think about building a bigger vision for godliness, I can be godly because the living God has captivated my soul. Let's take it a next step. The next kind of main thing I think we need to see in walking towards this is that godliness enables the truth of the gospel to be displayed. Godliness enables the truth of the gospel to be displayed. Why would I pursue godliness, right? That's the question this morning. Why am I pursuing godliness? Why would I subject myself to these things that seem so counter to my human desires? Before we jump into this part, I I think we need to be reminded about just a little bit. I've already spoken about our depravity. We can do nothing good apart from the grace of God. I like... uh, the, the rap song by Shailen, I've, I've quoted this before, but he would remind us, right, that I was a swollen corpse with hope no more until Jehovah the Lord dove from the shore to the ocean floor. And he says, yeah, I was a corpse and I smelled like it. And what's, what's Shailen talking about? It's, a, it's an awesome song on, on election. It's a rap song. It's just, it's just awesome. Uh, it's called, the album's called Lyrical Theology, if you've not listen to that album, but uh, he reminds us in there that, uh, that it wasn't God throwing us the life preserver, and then we reached out and grabbed it when it comes to our salvation. No, he says, I was a corpse swollen on the bottom of the ocean floor, and God dove to the bottom to rescue me. Um, I just want to remind us, because as we think about godliness enabling the truth of the gospel to be displayed, we have to understand before even walking into that, lest we steal or try to steal the glory of God, that all of that work in displaying the truth of the gospel through us is His work and not our work ultimately. So that's why I just want to hopefully keep our minds from from trying to steal God's glory. All right, so the last part of verse 15. It says, Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. All right, so the church here is described as the pillar and buttress of the truth, if you're wanting a sub-point. The church is described as the pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth equals the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The truth equals the gospel of Jesus Christ, which sinners must know in order to be saved. That we must know and continue to know in order to be saved. We're sinners in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Him dying on the cross as payment for our sins. Salvation found in faith in His work and in nothing else. Now, pillar and foundation. Let's think about the context here, Paul's context. In Ephesus stood the temple of Diana. Diana, A roof held up by what's recorded as 100 columns or pillars. I mean, now... I don't know if you guys have seen pictures of, of these kinds of things. I've not actually seen the Temple of, of Diana, but I've been to Israel. I went to Israel when I was in eighth grade and got to walk around and see some of these ruins of, I mean, you're talking pillars, like huge. I mean, I don't even know how they get them up there and start, you know, all this crazy stuff, but 
these huge roof on this temple held up by a hundred columns, each column approximately 60 feet high. Now to give you a perspective, from this floor to the, the very top of that ceiling's um, 18 feet. So you're talking over three times the height of the ceiling are pillars and columns that are holding this roof of this huge temple. I mean, maybe the closest thing we can think of is like, uh, like the Art Institute, kind of a building like that, you know, something of that kind of magnitude. Huge. So Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, I mean, this would be in mind as what stood there. And he's talking about the church, though, is the pillar and buttress of truth. Let me remind us, because there's kind of a little bit of a, a tension here. If you know what Paul has talked about when he talks about in Ephesians about truth, there's a little bit of a tension here. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, speaking of the truth that they spoke, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It seems like here, Paul is saying the foundation is the truth, not the church. Right? Like I think, and you read even beyond Ephesians, it seems like Paul would say, no, the truth is the foundation, not the church. Now again, when we're thinking church, we're thinking the gathering of the body. Right? The people of God. But the purpose of pillars... And the foundation was to provide strength and stability for the whole structure, right? So you think about that. You remove a column, and what happens? Some stability begins to be taken away. The whole structure is weakened. You take another pillar away, what happens? The structure gets weakened even more. You take another pillar away, and what happens? The structure gets weakened even And eventually, kind of like Jenga, right? You remove so many little blocks and all of a sudden the whole structure just kind of falls, right? So if the structure remains permanent though, think about this with me, the structure remains permanent and visible, then all those who come in contact with it can see it and enter it, right? The pillars they stay stable. They stay. The structure then remains. It's solid. Then when people walk by, they go, wow, there it is. I see that. And then what can they do? They can enter the structure. Follow me. Godly living in the household of God provides strength and visibility to the truth. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that godliness... And the household of God is like the pillars that hold up the structure. The whole structure is displaying the truth. Godly living in the household of God provides strength and visibility to the truth. How is this? When we pursue godliness, we are protecting guarding and displaying the gospel of truth. And, and let me encourage you this. Think about this a step further with me. It's more than just the fact that we are reflecting the truth of God's word. Yes, that is true. So when we live godly lives, the structure, the church, maintains the display of the truth. So yes, it, it maintains the display of the character of God and the truth of God's word, but we're also putting on display God diving to the bottom of the ocean floor and rescuing us from great sin and a, as a swollen corpse. So there's, there's many, many displays. It's not just, okay, so the people would walk by and see the character of God, but also walk by and see the character of God as it's displayed and rescuing sinful people so that they could even be a display of the glory of God. That they could even be used as pillars to hold up the structure that would display the glory of God. Ah, and I'm just reminded, I don't want to go down this rabbit trail, but Jesus says, you know, the temple will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, right? Just think about those pictures. 
the church, the gathering of God's people must uphold and display the truth. As the extent to which the conduct of God's people reflects the character of God is the extent to which the gospel will be supported and displayed for the passing world to see. We live, guys, in a church culture where we have abandoned the pursuit of godliness. Just, I even see it in, around in the lives around me. I've seen people, I've seen the temptation even in my own heart, but I've seen people get squeezed and squeezed. People who claim to follow Christ, they get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed by the pursuit of godliness that eventually... Many of them just go. Can't take. But the extent to which the conduct of God's people reflects the character of God is the extent to which the gospel we supported and displayed for the passing world to see. Why, why, why do we live in such a culture that does not desire God and despise I mean, yes, those are sinful hearts, but I'm afraid that when they look at the church, what's the structure they see? They see something built, like just like you and I, when we would look at the temple of Diana, we would look at that and go, wow, that's amazing. Like in our day, we would look at that and go, that's amazing, it's beautiful, it's crazy. I want to go in. But when the world looks at the temple that many of us have built, they go, I don't want to go in there. It looks like a house of horror. Why would I walk in there? My life's better out here. Alright, so we're on this journey this morning to build a bigger vision for the pursuit of godliness. So think about your godliness is just one piece to the structure that displays the truth of God. And every time a little piece of that structure is removed, right, what's that display to the world? So Pursue godliness because God has commanded us. Pursue godliness because God is living in us. Pursue godliness because it supports the visibility of the truth and the gospel. So why do we pursue godliness? Again, back to this question. Why do we seek to be above reproach, hospitable, respectful, faithful in all things? Why do we seek to know God's desires and His words so that we might reflect it? Why do we seek to affirm gender roles as God has defined them? Why do we, why do, we do these things? I want to quote C.J. Mahaney here. He says this, To the extent to which your life is an informed, consistent display of the life-transforming power of the gospel, the gospel will be effectively communicated. I'm going to read that again because it's such a good quote. To the extent to which your life is an informed, consistent display of the life-transforming power of the gospel, a.k.a. godliness, the gospel will be effectively communicated. I'm convinced that many of us, in order to start seeing those around us come to faith in Christ, the gospel we are preaching needs to be put on display. Next, you should pursue godliness, and the final point is this, because godliness puts on display the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's kind of similar to what we've already said in point two, but we're going to take it a step further. We're going to give a little more clarity to that. I think Paul helps us here. So the extent to which you search the Scriptures to be informed of God's desires and God's, His display of God, and who He is, the extent to which we live consistently with God's desires the extent to which we display the power of the transforming gospel or the transforming power of the gospel is the extent to which we will effectively be communicating the gospel. Let's read verse 16. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now listen to these words. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Look what Paul is saying here. It's that godliness, godly living, is the gospel. 
Godly living. Now, that's a pretty audacious statement, I think, to say. A pretty profound statement to say, I should say. Godly living is the gospel. Let's talk about this, because there might be some fine-tuning in here in our thinking we need to think about. Here, the mystery which godly living reveals is the truth. The mystery which godly living reveals is the truth. The truth, what? The gospel. What's he saying? Great indeed is the mystery of, the, of godliness. The mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ incarnated. Jesus Christ vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus Christ proclaimed among the nations. Jesus Christ believed on, faith placed in, in the world. Jesus Christ taken up into glory. That is the gospel. What does godliness reveal? It reveals the gospel. Great is the mystery of godliness. Godly living is the gospel. Glad obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ of those who have been saved through the death of Christ. I think Paul makes such a daring statement because he is so passionate about the need for Christians to live godly lives. And I think in our church culture, I, I'm faced, resting on our face to, at every turn with this idea of, you know, when we talk about pushing towards godliness, oh, you know, you're pushing too hard, or you're expecting too much, or pushing people too much, expecting too much, and, and I, just, I just think of Jesus, I think it's the end of Luke 9, and he says, he says, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is what? Is not fit for the kingdom of God. Why would we not push hard towards godliness? I know, with grace, with grace, with tenderness, with care, with kindness, absolutely. But why would we not? I think Paul makes such a daring statement because he is passionate about the need for Christians to live godly lives. It is a transforming power of the gospel in a sinner's life. That is, just as a kind of a side note, this is free this morning. There, there cannot be a doctrine of carnal Christian. Like I just, it's so permeated our churches today. Well, well, that's just a carnal Christian. There's no room for that. I don't, where, where is this idea that someone can claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ but live just like the world? Paul says the church, the people of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Not the pillar and buttress of the truth with kind of one column over here to the side doing nothing. He says the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Let me questions. Questions. Let's ask some questions. Do your co-workers know that you are a rescued sinner? All right? Do they know that you are a rescued sinner? Or do they just think that you're a good religious person? They'll, they'll believe what you tell them about that. I mean, they may not understand it. But they're believing what you're displaying. They either believe that you have done something to be the kind of person you are, a good religious person, or they believe that you think that it was, had nothing to do with you and had everything to do with God. They're going to believe one or the other. There really are just those two options, I think. That's another question. Do your classmates know that you have not changed yourself, but God has salvaged and made new the wreck that you made of your life or would make of your life? Or do they think that you simply have figured out how to make a couple right decisions? You see, I, I, th I think, all right, I think, we display to those around us what we want to display. The question is, do we want to display to them the marvelous work of God in our lives? Or do we want to display them the glorious work that we've done so far on our lives? If you've been redeemed by the work of God, you should be telling them the truth, not a lie. 
you should make sure they know the truth, not a lie. The truth is we were hopeless, dead at the bottom of the ocean floor until God gave me a new life. That is the truth. And our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors should know these things. I'm still hopeless apart from the work of God in my life, from the power of the gospel. So both the day I was saved and continuing to work out my salvation, that I was hopeless, I'm still hopeless apart from the work of God in my life. I'm seeking to be above reproach because it's God doing this in me. I'm seeking to have integrity because it's God working in me. My marriage is flourishing because the gospel has made me die to myself. My parenting is thriving because God through the gospel has killed my pride. I mean, these are the things that they should know that it's not us making some good decisions, being good religious people, but that God is the one on display in our lives. What would happen if your coworkers, neighbors, classmates, children saw the truth about the redemption in your life? What would happen? What would happen if they saw the truth about the redemption instead of a lie that we might be promoting? What if they knew that the only reason you have not met and will never meet total destruction is because of the redeeming and transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life? What if they knew that? What if they knew that you believed that? You see, listen, listen, listen to the context here in 1 first, in Timothy. The legalists pursue godliness for self-promotion. Those saved by grace pursue godliness for the purpose of gospel promotion. So what are we doing with our lives when we let people believe that the reason things are good in our lives is because of good decisions we've made? What are we allowing to be promoted? Ourselves. Our work. Our glory. Who else did that? The legalists did. So as we're building this bigger vision for why would I seek godliness? Who are you promoting? Who are you seeking to promote? Who do you want to lift up? Who do you want to put on display? Your works, God's works. Your gospel of change, where I can do things by pulling myself up by my bootstraps and because I go to church and, and I make some good decisions here and there. Or do we want to put on display that God is the one who rescued me from my sin? Who are you promoting? Those saved by grace pursue godliness for the purpose of gospel Promotion. So let me go back and read Mahaney's quote here. He says, To the extent to which your life is informed, consistent, display of the life-transforming power of the gospel, the gospel, will effective, the gospel will be effectively communicated. Why do we seek godliness? Why would we be encouraged? And this is not the only reason why we seek godliness, but it should be a part of our reasons for why we seek godliness, is that the gospel would be promoted, be proclaimed in our lives. Listen to the mystery of the godliness, again, put in poetic form as we've already read. Great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness is these things. Now look at lines 1, 3, and 5. He was manifested in the flesh, seen by angels, believed on in the world, I think what Paul's doing here, I could be wrong, but I think what Paul's doing, he's referring to Christ's bodily appearance in lines 1, 3, and 5. Manifested in the flesh, seen by angels, believed on in the world. That Christ really came in bodily form into this world. Look at lines 2, 4, and 6. Vindicated by the Spirit, proclaimed among the nations, taken up in glory. What's happening there? I think Christ is being lifted up for all to see His glory. The Spirit, He was lifted up from the grave and publicly vindicated is what Paul's referring to there. The church is lifting Christ up and exalting His name among the nations, among everyone, among our co-workers, our neighbors. He's being exalted. His glory is being, he is being promoted, right? He's being lifted high. And then the Father, you see in the last line, taken up in glory. Being taken up in glory is the ultimate demonstration of being exalted. That the Father would say, come back into my presence. 
Like, think about that, right? So again, what is, what is Paul saying here at this end? He's talking about what is being promoted, what is being exalted. So because Jesus Christ came, lived among His people, transformed His people, now Christ is being exalted because of that. What's the transformation that Christ did in His incarnation and His work on the cross? What is that? What is one of the results of that? The godliness of His people, that the people of God would reflect the character of God. So looking at the two strands, 1, 3, and 5, we have the gospel is that Christ came into the world to rescue sinners, to rescue us, to rescue me. And the second strand, 2, 4, and 6, is that the Christian life is to follow Christ through embracing godliness in order for the rescue of sinners and the rescuer himself to be displayed for all to see. That your life, your life, your life, your life would be a display of a rescued sinner and the rescuer who rescued Why should we pursue godliness? Why should we seek to know the desires of God and His Word? Why should we seek to live out the character of God? We pursue godliness so that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that He died on the cross to rescue us from our sins and to pay the price for us, we, we, we die to ourselves and we pursue godliness so that that truth, the truth of the work of Jesus Christ, would be promoted, would be proclaimed, to all the nations of the world. That starts with your coworker, your neighbor, your classmate. By the transforming power of the gospel, a sinner has chosen God. By the transforming power of the gospel, a sinner continues to choose God to this day, and he pursues godliness. The extent to which you know the gospel and live consistently with the gospel is the extent to which you will effectively communicate the gospel. So church, why, why do we pursue godliness? Why do we pursue godliness? So that the truth of our God would be on display. So that all of those who walk by would see it, first of all, that they could even see it. And second of all, so they could walk in. God's plan is to use us in this way. Do you understand that? Like that God's plan is to mold us and shape us into this. It's to shape us in to being this display of His truth. It's right, it's Philippians 2. It's, it's His work. And He who began that work will see it to completion. The continued redemption. When God is redeeming every aspect of your life, yes, He redeemed you ultimately initially from sin, but He is all He's still redeeming and restoring parts of our lives. He is doing that. That is His work. Why is He doing that? So that His glory would be put on display. So that the church would be seen as the pillar and buttress of the truth of God. The truth what? That God is holy. And that God has sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners. Like you and I. So my hope this morning is that you would stand in awe of that truth. That you would be inspired by that. That you would be motivated by that. That God is the one on display at the center of this purpose for your persevering in godliness. That God is on display as you're motivated and inspired by the reason why we pursue godliness would be to promote the gospel, to proclaim the gospel that the world watching us, because they're always watching, looks and sees the truth. That they would see the truth with your life. Thank God that He has chosen us, His creatures, to display His truth, right? Praise God for that. Yeah, amen. Amen. All right. Well, I want to pray for us. We're going to continue to worship this morning and reflect on these things. We pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. <clears throat> thank you for, for giving us your word. Father, thank you that uh, your glory and your character is not just displayed, 
in righteously judging and sending sinners to their deserved payment and punishment. But Father, your, your character, your righteousness, your justice, your mercy, your grace, your character is also displayed in the rescuing of sinners from what they deserve. So Father, thank you. Thank you that that is first and foremost the case, but thank you that we, as your creatures, get to be used by you to redeem, to take this redeeming knowledge to those around us. Father, that our godliness is not just for selfish gain. It's not just that, that I would make it to heaven or that, you know, I, I am working out my salvation. Like, yes, that's all part of it, but like, Father, that... That I, am, that I am displaying the godliness. I'm seeking godliness in my life so that other people would know the truth about you, Father. So, Father, just, uh, just pray that, that your people would have an awe-inspiring and motivating vision for why we would continue in persevering in godliness that you might be proclaimed in our lives. Father, may it be in our hearts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys stand with me.